0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to Black Mirror. Sorry, <laughs> welcome to the minefield. <laughs> yes. A show where we refract. Oh, I've uh, forgotten what it is already. Scott. Oh, I'm sorry. No, nah, don't I'm worry. Sorry. That's so good. I'm so glad you started that way. Well, it's. I mean. I was foreshadowing the content, Scott. <laughs> uh, well, they're my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host, uh, et cetera. This is uh, your suggestion, this mm. topic. Mm. And I don't think you had to get to the end of the sentence before I was on board.
2: Well, no. Because your, hang on. Your first response was, ugh, yuck. That's a horrible idea. Not
1: to oh, my idea, the, but to the topic, to the yes, yes, suggestion. Yes, yes. Yeah. I thought discussing it was a fantastic idea. Yeah. You know why? Because that's actually so I, interesting to me, actually. It's well, I so thought about this issue a few weeks before you raised it. Yeah. And I immediately had a visceral reaction. I was just like, no, this is, this is terrible. Mm. It should have absolutely nothing to do with this. And um, then when you suggested it, I was obviously primed and ready to go. I can feel the suspense building. Both listeners are saying, what is it they're talking about <laughs> that well, they'd had such a strong reaction to? Would you like to tell them, Scott? I would love to. And, and I'll just say before I do, I actually yep. think
2: almost the entire discussion could be devoted to that visceral reaction. Oh. Uh-huh. Is why I found it visceral? Yeah. Well well no, not why you found it visceral, but why the reaction. There are some things, you know. I mean, there are there are traits or there are moral dispositions, there are moral responses to things that are noxious and horrible, and a good deal of the moral life needs to be spent overcoming those things. I think certain forms of disgust uh, certain forms uh, of the feeling of kind of taintedness or uncleanness or shame these are things that that I mean can be oriented towards moral purposes towards the betterment and the cultivation of the proper conditions of our common life, but those can also be ways of sort of shutting down the possibility mm. of genuine friendship uh, real communality. Um, but there there are occasions aren 't there? Where an initial response, you just know is the right moral response. And then the rest of the time needs to be spent getting your mind around what your heart already told you yeah, was wrong. Right. Right. Yes, Some, yes. Sometimes people refer to that as a moral intuition. You just know.
1: Yep. And then the rest of it is kind of articulating why. Um, I think. Yes. Although that, that, the reliability of that intuition yeah. surely yeah. depends on... Yes. <laughs> One's formation. Yes, of course. Of course it does. Yeah. All so right. If you're malformed, your intuitions will be bad. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Beautifully put. Okay. All right. You still haven't told both listeners what it is I know. that we're talking I about. I know. Both. Both listeners. You're in my mums, I think. <laughs> <was still> there. <laughs> I don't know if my mum's dropped off. Oh, anyway, really? Oh, that would break my heart. Do you know what? Actually, I will say this at the risk of wasting a lot of time. Um, my mother-in-law listens and she frequently takes me to task for being mean to you. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you think I tease you too much? I never think you're mean. Oh, well, did you hear that, Jan? Okay. Go on. So, so end of June at,
2: I don't even know what it was called. Is it a shareholders meeting? Is it a thing where they announced their upcoming products? Amazon announced that they were working on software, working on an update to their uh, Alexa operating system that would allow people that would allow Alexa which is a home voice assistant usually embodied or instantiated in a speaker there on a coffee table or bedside table or on a kitchen cabinet or something something like that something that you address that uh, then performs certain tasks for you that you direct it to do read out a recipe order the following book for me play the following podcast or whatever so anyway, uh, Amazon announced that with little more than uh, 10 minutes of an audio sample, the upgrade to Alexa's operating system would give it the ability to mimic any voice, which means that it would then be able to speak to you, uh, it would be able to address you in the voice that you have selected. Now, to some extent, that's already been one of Alexa's features. Can I just be right up front? I'm sure that anybody who's listened to this show for any period of time doesn't need me to say that I do not use Alexa. I will never use a voice assistant. Uh, that would be the kind of thing that, to my mind, would be a defilement of the home, uh, of something like a, uh, like a beneficial moral community
1: that a family ought to be.
2: I just won't have it. I think it's wrong. Um,
1: we can talk and about that. And unfortunately, I'm of the same view. Okay, there you go. So, well, fortunate in that I think that's the correct view, but unfortunate in that there's not really diversity perspective. Was, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so, look, you could already program the voice that spoke to you along certain parameters. So, I mean, certain celebrities have done it. Wouldn't you, couldn't you get Samuel L. Jackson, I think, to, to be one of the Alexa voices? So it, it, it's not always the kind of the preening subservient feminine voice um, sort of waiting at your beck and command. You could could already modify it to some degree. But what the proposed update, and it's not available yet, and there's no clear timetable about when it will be available, but what that left the option, and this would have been the headline that I imagine a fair few people would have read, Mm. that means that given a sufficient audio sample, which doesn't have to be that long, Alexa can then... Speak in the voice or mimic the voice, and I think that's very important. It can mimic the voice of, say, a loved one, a partner, a friend, someone you've never met but whose voice you seem to like, say, the host of a show called The Minefield. Not me, Waleed. Um, <laughs> Or potentially a deceased loved one. A deceased relative. And so the immediate example that was then provided was a child asking Alexa, could grandma read to me the rest of Wizard of Oz? And then Alexa switches into that particular voice. And I think one of the things that's interesting, anybody who's been following the latest ideas that come out of Silicon Valley, know that it's not just technology that they're selling. They're selling emotional connections. This has always been Facebook's big point, hasn't it? That, you know, we are delivering to you connections with people that matter to you. We are giving you access to memories, things that matter to you. Anniversaries. uh, This photo was taken four years ago. I mean, my wife is always... Telling me, oh, you wouldn't believe what just came up in my feet. Do you remember when we took this photo of the boys, uh, for instance? So...
1: Can I confess something? Yeah. That's the one thing I quite like. Okay. Yeah. not I don't, I'm don't. i not on social media, but like on my phone, when it sends me a photo from four years ago, and I go, oh my God, look how cute the kids were. Yeah, obviously, I don't like... Yeah. Anyway, we can talk about
2: that later. So it's the emotional value of the technology that is usually being sold to
1: us. And it's just Which, so... Which, can I say, yeah. is also the site of... I think, the most significant criticism of these things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is that they're not really selling that. What they're selling is some kind of debauched facsimile of that. Yeah. That in so many cases displaces the real version or some other uh, real alternative. You know that visceral reaction I described at the start of the show? Yeah. I have a similar sort of reaction whenever I hear anyone use the word connection. Yes. Or connect. Or sharing. Yeah. Sh-
2: It's so interesting to me the way that the whole lexicon of sharing has been taken over. Because once upon a time, sharing is something, for instance, that took place in an Alcoholics Anonymous group. Sharing is something that took place between uh, two close friends or two intimates or two confidants. Now... Even the language of sharing has been so commodified. And I think what it's doing is it's trading on the latent emotive
1: value that's already built into ideas of connection, of sharing. So it's it's of taking community. deeply humanized concepts. That's right. And then applying the language of those concepts to things that are dehumanized. Yeah.
2: Now, can I pick you up on one thing? I love that you said sure. a kind of debauched facsimile of the real thing. The reason Mm. that you brought up Black Mirror, I mean, this really does sound like an episode of Black Mirror, Mm. uh, which is a sci-fi, dystopian sort of... self-contained anthology series. So it's not a series as in one episode leads to the next, although there have been connections between different episodes that have been quite clever. Um, but it's more that you it, the episodes tend to be standalone. And one of the beautiful things, so Charlie Brooker is the showrunner of it. So he gets various people to write and, and direct. One of the nut things that I just love about Black Mirror is that it's never so far in the future that you can't imagine it happening. It's the technology that's available to us now with that one tiny little uncanny step forward that then turns something that seems like a good idea or seems like a useful function or seems like a really nice convenience and it turns it into a nightmare. Um, there was one episode, it's the first episode of season two of Black Mirror. It's called Be Right Back. It's my favorite of, uh, I think it's up to season four now. Um, a woman. Martha, she loses her partner, Ash, in a car accident. The time that's spent at the very beginning uh, setting up the relationship between them, he's depicted, you know, spending so much time on his phone, he's sort of rarely detached from it. Um, She's grieving. This is only about 10 minutes or so in. She's grieving and she gets contacted. No, a friend recommends to her a service that she found her friend found useful, which was a program that allowed you to essentially engage in something like a messenger, a series of text messages with your deceased loved one. So essentially, you cede to the company, to this service, their emails, their text messages, and they then simulate The voice in text form so that, you know, if you're really feeling particularly sort of longing for contact with this person, you can reach out in text form. You know what's coming. The next step is Mm. you can call them on a phone and a simulated AI or an AI will simulate their voice on the other end of the phone. And then, of course, you know what's coming next. Then the company says we can now essentially give you a kind of replicant. Um, So there's a body that then has that AI implanted in it. And so we can restore your loved one to you in, in artificial form. The thing that's so interesting about the particular episode, I'm not, know, spoiler, but you just need to go watch it. It doesn't take anything away from the power <laughs> okay. of the episode. But what is it, Martha wonders, what is it that makes me not find it possible to feel the emotional connection with this, with this synthetic human body who looks so much like the person I loved, who talks like the person I loved, has the same, same facial. And what she realizes over time, and it's actually through a series of dialogue with the replicant himself, all of the photos that he saved on his social media accounts, on his phone, on the various social platforms, all of the photos... Uh, that he saved were the ones that portrayed his face in the best and most perfect light. Anything that demonstrated or displayed a flaw, a a twitch, something that was an imperfection, was deleted, which meant that the person that was restored, the quote-unquote person who is restored, was a far too perfect version of what it was that she had lost. And in a very real way, it's the very imperfections that were indissociable from the person himself. It's and the
1: problem of auto-tune rendered in human yeah. form. <laughs> Very nice.
2: That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, and it's one of the reasons, for instance, why I think uh, I love Dylan and you love the Beatles. Um, he, they never performed the same song twice. Um, there's always that kind of virtuosity uh, that intervenes, which is
1: why um, the songs are irrepeatable in that mm. Particular way. Anyway, so which means they're inflected with humanity. Right? That's right. right. That's that's the thing about it. Okay. So why yeah. why your reaction? Why your response? Why does
2: the idea of having a deceased loved one addressing you in a synthesized voice
1: out of a speaker? Why did that evoke the reaction that it did, Walid? I think for several reasons, uh, and I don't know for sure. This is just my immediate theorizing on it. I think firstly. There's something ghoulish about it. So there are certain... There is a difference, no matter how good, there is a difference between a simulation and the real thing. Hmm. And there's something about a simulation that hollows out, I think, the essence of the original. So if I have a loved one who's died, that simulation is not bringing them back What it's doing is kind of sedating me um, and sedating my pain in a way that is just dishonest Hmm. and lacks the richness and all of the things that made that person so loved and valued to me in the first place. To love a robot that looks the same as... um, a person is not the same as loving a person, I would contend. Hmm. And I think at least at this point in history, that's an uncontroversial contention. I have no (laughs) doubt it will become a controversial contention at some point in the near future. My second problem, I think, is uh, I feel like it reflects a really understandable but nonetheless immature impulse in human beings and especially modern human beings To try to do everything to remove the grit, the discomfort, the pain of life. I say it's understandable because, of course, human beings want to remove pain from their lives. But what is missing from this is a sense that grief is important. That it's a really crucial human experience. It changes who we are. It informs who we are, but it also allows us to become something else or or become, I don't know, something more evolved or enhanced or, or whatever it might be. So in other words, this is, it seems to me, a kind of stunting, an emotional or a spiritual stunting. Like mm. I refuse to let go. I refuse to feel grief. I'm just going to constantly have this balm applied to me, which in the long run probably does us harm because we never move on, mm. or at least I imagine we would never move on if we have something like this available. Because it's, it, the it's, third...
2: it's funny, sorry, just, just quickly. When you said yeah. that it, it's almost a form of sedation, yeah. I had the opposite reaction. For me, it's almost a way of keeping the wound livid, um, uh, preventing grief from doing its proper role. And it's, it's just mm. always struck me that one of the great ways that we show kindness to one another. Is by forgetting, not not forgetting about the other person. I mean, I, I've had I've had moments where, for instance, I've had a severe falling out with somebody over a matter of principle, something that we both cared very very deeply about. The worst thing that we could have done would be to hash it out, because by hashing it out, the hard edges of that disagreement would have become sharper and sharper and sharper, mm-hmm. more and more uh, irreconcilable. In some respects the best way of moving on is simply by forgetting what one disagreed about in the first place so sometimes allowing memories to fade allowing the hard edges hard edges to simply dull over time um simply moving on and allowing that kind of tarrying together to take its normal course, very frequently that can be the best way of showing a very fundamental form of kindness to one another. Whereas holding on too much, keeping the memories too accurate. And this is why, unlike you, I don't like the memories of those pictures from four, five, six years ago. Um, to my mind, the memory of those times is far more important rather than the accuracy
1: uh, or the timeliness of the representations. Yeah. I don't think they do give you precisely accurate memories. I think what they do is tricky or inaccurate ones. <laughs> okay, nice. <All> right. <laughs> slightly different thing. But either way, the photos are just so cute. Um, my, I, I hear what you say, I'd have to think more about it, because here we're not talking about a kindness equation because the person's deceased. No, that's right. So it's a, I'm not entirely sure how to apply your reasoning to this case, but anyway. That's an aside. My third objection, and this is not a trivial one, this may even be the main motivator, I'm not entirely sure. No, I would say the first two are are the specific details or the the example that underscore my third objection, which is I cannot stand the mythology of techtopia. Hmm. I can't stand I'm not a fan of utopianism anyway. But this idea that through the development of ever more fantastic technology that can simply be adapted to fulfill our desires, we are somehow going to create a better world, is I think one of the most wrongheaded uh, and dangerous mythologies of our age. And maybe it's starting to erode because it is so quickly fallen apart. Like maybe actually... That was a mythology of, I don't know, the 2010s and the arrival of smartphones or whatever, I don't know. But already you can see how much people have fallen out of love with social media even as they are hopelessly addicted to it and the sort of corrosive contribution that technology is making to so much of society. This idea that Silicon Valley will somehow save us because of, I don't know, some kind of misplaced positivist faith or something that we can reduce all of our troubles in life to equations that can be solved through the application of, um, you know, technological solutions or whatever, I I can't stand it. Mm. And so whenever I see, I think this explains what's visceral about it for me, whenever I see an attempt to do that, to displace something that is so human, so important, such a a long-standing part of the human condition, to displace that or make it better somehow because... We can, because a software engineer somewhere figured out a way to do that when really what's being fed is just an immediate desire of some sort. Uh, it's the road to perdition. It's, I, I can't tell you how upset I am by that idea. Can I give
2: that sentiment, which I agree with entirely, can I give it one little added, apposite twist? Anything that adds to that, I'm up for. Um, at the beginning of her great book, Uh, The Human Condition. Hannah Arendt begins kind of improbably, and uh, it still surprised me how many people have been puzzled, the fact that she begins the book in this way. She begins with an extended meditation on the launching of the Sputnik into the Earth's atmosphere. And she says, you know, on the one hand, there is something aesthetically thrilling that human beings have put something made by their hands to consort and frolic and dance among the celestial bodies. I mean, it's it's just kind of this beautiful sort of uh, um, uh, poetic flourish. But she says, nonetheless, the very act of sending something outside of the earth's atmosphere cannot help but be regarded with the deepest suspicion. Mm. For her, she says, the air is the quintessence of the human condition because she says that the air is uh, stands for us the inherent nature of human limitations we breathe the same air therefore we speak with one another we cooperate together in order to overcome shared problems she said anything that denies the inherency of human limitations that tries to find technological means of overcoming those inherent human limitations is an attempt to do without the necessary human response to human limitations, which is what she called democratic politics. In other words, she said that by trying to escape the air, we're trying to escape the limits of what it means to be human. And isn't it remarkable, Walid, that the very company that wants to try to overcome or that whose update, to, <laughs> we're not trying to over this too much, whose update To the operating system of one of its home devices flirts with the idea of overcoming something like the loss of a loved one by simulating their voice in the confines of the family home. That very same company um, is longing and slobbering and slavering over the prospect of escaping uh, the Earth's own limitations and by moving some of the Earth's um, uh, pollutants and pollutant-heavy manufacturing systems off our planet. In other words, mm. it's no wonder that the very company, namely Amazon, that wants to do this to Alexa is also looking at ways of colonizing yeah, other planets. It's the pursuit of limitlessness. But I think this, th- this idea that inherent human limitations are not... Uh, an essential part of the human condition, but are rather problems to be solved. Things to which there is a technological fix. I think think you're absolutely right. There are some things that are not inherent limitations. These are things that human beings really can and really should intervene in. But there are other things I think you're right. They are simply part of what it means to be human, which makes me wonder, why is it that uh, companies that are involved in fairly elegant technological solutions to a whole number of seeming limitations like uh, time and distance, why are they so prepared to trample on what I think you and I would both regard as being sacred ground? Why are they so flippant or cavalier
1: with the the emotional stuff of human life? Because you're using words like sacred, which have no contemporary meaning. Yeah. Good. Glad we sorted that out. Uh, this is the Mindfield on RN and on podcast. I'm Willie Daly. My co-host is Scott Stevens. Uh, our guest, she's been on the show before. Uh, In fact, we just bring her on to talk about dystopian technology. Really, yeah, that seems to- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, In
2: many respects, it was a a lovely article that she wrote for the ABC called Alexa, Why Do You Need Me to Like You? That really got us thinking about this quite seriously. Yolanda Stringers is associate professor of digital technology and society in the emerging technologies research lab at Monash University. She's the co-author with Jenny Kennedy. Of a stunning book. It really is, I think, essential reading. It's called The Smart Wife, Why Siri, Alexa, and Other Smart Home Devices Need a Feminist Reboot. Yolanda, thank you so much for being willing to join us once again on the minefield.
0: Thanks for having me again.
2: So can I just begin with where Walid and I just ended, which is why the determination or the willingness to trade in human emotion as a way of commending what really are utilities. I mean, they are sophisticated utilities, but they really are utilities. I mean, in the past, other utilities were commended to us because of the great convenience that they would bring, the amount of time that they would save. But it seems to me that there's a whole range of smart technologies, or seemingly smart technologies. It's not just the utility of it. It's the emotional connection. It's the commodification of the emotional connection that is so tantalizing to me. Can, can you help us think through why that would be appealing in the first place?
0: Absolutely. Look, I, and I really enjoyed your um, discussion about, you know, the visceral reactions of the technology and and how how you reacted to this idea of Alexa suddenly possibly being able to resurrect the voices of loved ones. But for me, the question when I heard this happening wasn't so much about my own reaction or the reaction that was so prevalent in the media at the time. It was, well, why are these companies doing this they are a really you would presume quite smart bunch full of amazing designers and you know all all disciplines you know this is not this kind of reaction is not something that they wouldn't have already considered so why have they Proceeded with uh, this this idea, and I came back, I guess, to the work that uh, Jenny and I did in the Smart Wife, and you know the the whole kind of design philosophy of so many of these voice assistants and technologies in our lives now, which is that they want us to use them, they want us to like them, not because they're trying to sell us the device itself. But because they want to embed them in our lives, because the real value for companies like Amazon and Google, Microsoft and the rest of them is not so much whether or not we go out and buy an Alexa, it's whether or not we then feel comfortable enough to share our most intimate thoughts, feelings, desires and kind of needs and wants to these devices and in turn to these companies whose real Market imperative is actually to sell us more things, to you know manipulate or coerce, uh, not in a kind of really big brother or Orwellian kind of sense, but in a very subtle, insidious sort of way in terms of affecting the way that we live and the kinds of things we might want or desire. So, even though many of us are having this kind of instant, oh, I wouldn't want a dead person, you know, in my house speaking to me. Once, if if a company like Amazon can get us past that initial reaction and talking with a device uh, and associating it with these really comfortable, familiar people in our lives, they can potentially get us to the point where we are sharing more of that data with them and where we are then, you know, opening up new markets and new opportunities for them. And that really, I think, gets to the crux of what this is all about.
1: So the imperative is still commercial. Yeah. You seem to be saying it's just that the pathway there is a little more insidious than we would conventionally. Yeah.
0: The, the emotional say. connection is the means to the end, the end being the the markets that that potentially creates. Mm-hmm.
1: But well, I suppose what Scott's asking, or well, at least what I would like to know, is why do we fall for it? <laughs> or, maybe, or do we? Or do, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you want to contest that assumption, but. It works, right? Like, I'm intrigued by this thing where we get hooked in by technology that's offering us actually not very much in a sort of deep, enriching way. It's offering us mostly surface. It's it's constant chocolate bars, mm. right? And we just keep eating them. And we say, oh, it's terrible that we're eating these these chocolate bars, but, oh, look, a chocolate bar. That That seems to be the treadmill that we're on i'm not sure sorry i'm so sorry willie
2: i'm not entirely sure about that because i think that and sorry, I'm, I'm not defending what's going on here i mean but there's a difference between say playing a platform-based game like candy crush which really would be just that kind of the constant sort of sugar hit oh that's fun that whittles away a little bit of time it's nothing i'm in thinking it. more about the social media side yes but basically but, but this is this is the point the extent to which social media trades in human emotions and tries to surf those pathways, those really tenacious emotional connections that exist between human beings and the longing for those emotions. I mean, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is why it is over the last 120, 140 years. Why is it, for instance, that, uh, that the media have sought to commodify deep, strong, Fierce, ferocious human emotions as a way of gaining loyalty from their potential customers or potential viewers. This, this is the chocolate bar. Well, yeah, but it's not exactly the chocolate bar because, for instance, a, a, a little bit of purient puri- curiosity. Oh, a grisly murder. Oh, a bit a sex scandal involving a politician. I think that's the chocolate bar. The I am with. All these people feeling the same way about a particular event, about a particular scan, about a particular issue. There's something about that that is a longing for human connection, a longing for human community around a shared task, around a shared value. So, to, to my mind, but, that, but that's why it's a chocolate bar because yeah, it's not that. But the debased thing about this is that it's is that things like Alexa, Facebook, there I should say Amazon, Facebook. They're taking something which is precious, namely the human longing for connection, and they're monetizing it. I don't think that's a chocolate bar. I think it's worse than that. I think it's something sacred that is being debased
1: for commercial ends. I suppose Yolanda, my question stands, though, is why do we fall for it?
0: I'm not sure I would I would say that we sort of fall for it. I think um, we're lured in by that maybe maybe this is where your chocolate bar analogy does work, you know, by that kind of sweet taste or the the, the sense of naturalness and familiarity that comes from engaging with technology that is, you know, intuitive, that is um, familiar and like something else that we have in our lives, which is conversation with people. So that's the kind of hook, that's the kind of way in that we're Companies like Amazon can kind of um, implicate this technology in our lives because it's, you know, it's potentially a more intuitive to say speak to a Siri or a Google Home or whatever than it is to type and text, and and so it's about the convenience, but also the um, the familiarity, and and falling back on the. This is where where likability comes in, you know, falling back on the familiar stereotypes, falling back on concepts like is it cute, is it non-threatening, is it, you know, is there anything to worry about here? And when the answer is no, well, then that that kind of enables an even deeper connection with the technology. But having said that, I don't think everybody is sort of like Pied Piper kind of falling off the cliff or, um, you know, just running towards the candy because even at the same time as we recognise that this is kind of a nice, easy interface maybe to interact with or something that satisfies in us in terms of our own, you know, sense of comfort when we interact with a voice that does or sounds, you know, similar to what we expect it to sound like. We can also be slightly concerned about it. We can also be worried about what it might be potentially doing. I mean, this is, definitely the case with social media now as well, where, you know, we, we interact with it and yet at the same time we question our own interaction. Um, we have smartphones, we we have them embedded in our lives, and yet at the same time we question whether that's a good thing. And so I but think...
1: What's the questioning worth?
0: What's the questioning
1: worth? Oh, I really shouldn't be doing... Oh, well, anyway, I better keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's been achieved by that process?
0: Well. I mean, I guess there are, you know, people set different limits. I mean, you, you and Scott just said before, you know, you don't have Alexa in your life. So I guess different mm. people are sort of setting different limits around that. I actually, in confession, do have an Alexa oh. in my home. Oh. Um, and so we have a, well, I have a very fraught relationship Deborah. with the device. I kind of want to treat it well, but then I also um, am very aware of what it's sort of, doing and saying to me so I, I guess I hold that own tension in my own head why don't you just throw now? it
1: out though like you, ha- you well, that have would be
0: e-waste Willie.
1: well okay burn it figure <laughs> a, like, burn it like I just think you probably have a deeper more theorized understanding of the problem of this than anybody else in the country right like or, or at least most people and yet there you are
0: yeah, there I am. And look, I mean, I justify it, which is probably quite tenuous as a, as a kind of research experiment because, right. um, you know, I do research on this stuff. So having it in my own home is kind of interesting. But there are things that Alexa does that is useful. And this is where the technology, and you can, you can think about this much broadly than just digital systems or AI, you know, it kind of grabs us in because it offers us something, something that we intuitively want. And-, and You know, you said before about social media. You know, it offers us that gratification, like instant gratification, and that social connection. Even at the same time, while we realise probably much better for us to be going out and spending time with real people. So it's that it's constantly, I think, in tension with our own our own values and our own needs and desires. So
1: here's the way I would frame this, Scott, and you will, I think, recognise this as a sort of, I don't know, um, resalian. framing. Nice. (laughs) If you like. I don't think anybody else understood what you just said, but yes, I got it. (laughs) Well, if you listen to our Ramadan series, that's right. Um, But this is really about us being enslaved to desire, isn't it? Mm. That's that. Isn't that what explains this tension? I know this isn't good for me, uh, but I'm just going to keep doing it anyway. I know that whatever enjoyment it gives me is either ephemeral, which is partly why I need to keep doing it in order to keep getting the dopamine hit, or that it's offering me some really quite mild benefit like convenience rather than something deeper. But because I am not in any way, um, I don't know, habituated to resisting desire for some other benefit or for some more meaningful, enduring, long-term benefit, I don't have the resources to to resist this, or I don't, I don't have the, the will or the sort of ethical or moral imperative to resist this. I mean, recently, we learned about the level of data gathering, for example, that TikTok is doing. Mm. And when you follow the trail back, the, it, there's obviously, there's a company in China, there's data now we know in China, we know that the Chinese government therefore by law has access to that data if they want it. Uh, and yet... Or who is who is going to abandon their TikTok habit? So, so we, will, we will quite happily hand over. It's, this is not even a matter of, oh, well, you know, the government's not going to get it. The Chinese government, could, who not, you don't know what they could do. They're practised in a form of politics that you're not used to being in. We are quite happy to hand that over. And for what? Usually some kind of short-run sugar hit. It's why I use the chocolate bar analogy, Mm. right? This is, I think, in the end, a manifestation of the inconquerability of of modern desire, isn't it? Look, I I
2: mean, you already know how I feel about that. Of, Of course, I think in a very deep and profound way, that's right. There's one way, though, that I think I'd probably want to maybe differ a little bit. The... The implication, and I'm not sure how thoroughly you're meaning this, but the implication is there is a kind of perverseness about that desire. We can't dissociate ourselves from it. And so we just find ourselves constantly giving into it, even when we know that, well, it's probably not great for our attention. It's probably not good for data gathering. It's probably giving possibly nefarious actors access to things that they shouldn't otherwise have. Um, I think I probably want to see it in a slightly different way. There is something about the longing to be seen or to be liked or to be recognized by others that is probably instantiated by our longing for retweets and shares and likes and views. Mm. There's something about our longing for human connection that is probably being instantiated by our desire to friend and be friended and to follow and to be followed. I think all of these things are a proper expression of what it means to be human. The problem is that expression is being not even satisfied, but it's being momentarily captured. It's being snagged. It's being hooked on what is at best a poor substitute. What is at worst something that is giving us intermediate, passing, fleeting, flaring forms of enjoyment and then weaning us off the idea that there are deeper connections that should be had here so to my mind there's nothing really perverse about the longing for recognition there's nothing perverse in other words that that uh, should be described as a form of desire there's nothing perverse about a longing for human connection but it's the way that much like the lexicon we were talking about before about sharing and connecting. There's a way in which these proper human longings, these things that really do enrich what it means to be human, there's an extent to which these are being traded upon and these are being then counterfeited and commodified uh, that is appealing to something that is right and proper and essential uh, and yet doing it in such a way that it makes us feel like we've got, well, maybe not the real thing, but something that'll do.
0: I think you, yeah, really just hit the nail on the, the head there, Scott, in the in the sense that, you know, so far we've really been talking about the individual kind of user or consumer and, and I guess how we get sucked in or not and how we kind of navigate that moral dilemma ourselves. But the, the real shift that's happening at the moment in the tech world and particularly in AI is just the level of moral decision-making, if I can put it that way, that is going on within big tech companies, which, you know, we can attempt to individually resist or, um, you know, remove ourselves from or all the things we've sort of been discussing to date. But what what we also need to be talking about is what obligation these companies have uh, when they have such incredible control and opportunity to embed themselves in our lives and to develop the kind of technology that we know can actually um, coerce, manipulate and potentially deceive us. So this is, this I think is a real challenge in a sort of neoliberal society where so much of our um, society's kind of sense of dealing with issues and problems has been put onto the individual level. You know, we've been told it's all about our own choices, it's all about getting informed and having, you know, reading the terms and conditions and being our own kind of decision makers. Uh, and uh, that has abdicated, I think, a lot of the um, the responsibility and, and the conversation, has taken the conversation away from more and more levels of and depth, this depth of coercion that can now occur through technology. So I think the kind of political movement of the country towards neoliberalism has sort of undermined what's actually happening in terms of technology development, and and maybe maybe that has kind of led to um, the emphasis not being enough on what these companies are doing and how how what kind of responsibility they have in this regard. You know, it is quite telling that Amazon has has. Gone ahead with this idea. I think I keep coming back to that—that that they, they've looked at the options, they've looked at this this design feature, and they've said, "Yes, we're going to offer this to consumers because but they it's also all about have the consumer example. choice."
2: They, they also have—I uh, beg your pardon, Yolanda—they also have the example of Microsoft, who flirted with the idea,
0: yes, and yep. abandoned it. So it's not
2: like there's this kind of headlong push where everybody's doing it, so they need to try to jump in first.
0: Mm-hmm. And and that's interesting too, you know, why, why Amazon and not Microsoft. And I think the answer would lie in, again, the market that Amazon has. You know, Amazon being the biggest e-commerce company in the world stands to gain a lot from having trusted voices in people's homes that they can use to sell services and products. It uh, may not be there yet, that may take some time to establish, but... I can totally see how, from their perspective, this could be a longer-term, you know, good economic decision. But whether or not it's a moral one and whether or not they should have the right to even make it is a bigger kind of ethical conundrum, I think.
1: You're listening to The Minefield on RN and on podcast. I'm Waleed Ali. Scott Stevens is my co-host. The other voice you're hearing belongs to Yolanda Stringers, who's Associate Professor of Digital Technology and Society at Monash University. My question to you, is to what extent do you think we want the behaviour of these companies or the product they're offering to change? I mean, one of the things about what they offer, and this is, I guess, why I framed it the way I did around desire, is it feeds desire. I take um, Scott's point about it also feeds those things that are emotional and Sorry, deep and essential to the human condition. But it's also just our perpetual desire for entertainment that gets fed. Or convenience. Yeah, Mm. all of these things, right? So all of it's in the same basket. And I'm amazed at how often... No, amazed is the wrong word. I note how often when people are asked, you know, would you want to pay for this service if it came with various restrictions or if it... are, Are you comfortable handing over all that data if it means you get ads that are more specifically targeted to you and so on. By and large, we are comfortable. By and large, we like the things being offered. I take your point about regulation. Um, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer that that has to happen, whether or not it can or will. But do we want it to happen?
0: Do we want it to change? Yeah, yeah look, it's a really interesting question. I think, and I think it depends how you ask people that question. And this is where the whole usability framing uh, is not very helpful, I think, in thinking about the impact of AI in the world and on society. Because if you ask people, do you want this? Is it useful? I mean, even, even Alexa is quite useful, right? So if you ask me, is Alexa useful? I'd say yes. I'd say Alexa can do some things that are quite helpful in my home. If you ask me, Do I uh, think Alexa is having a positive impact on the planet? I would say no. If you ask me, do I think that um, Alexa is reproducing good values in society? I would say no. So I think it depends on what level you ask people the question, you know, about what it is they like about those products.
1: It also depends on what level their concern lies, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, most people's concern is also about, you know, people are concerned about climate change. People are concerned about e-waste. People are concerned about mining of minerals for, you know, new products and devices. They're concerned about gender and racial stereotypes. They're concerned about mental health. They're concerned, you know, so there are a lot of ways that you could say, if you you know, if you ask some different questions that weren't just about, is this device useful? You'd probably um, find that people are quite deeply concerned about AI in their lives and the impacts it might be having more broadly beyond their individual interface and individual kind of interaction and relationship with it.
1: So you think a, a push to regulate in a really serious way, even ban the development of certain products, would be a widely popular one?
0: I don't think it would be widely popular. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think it would be a very complicated and... Difficult discussion to have, and um, you know, I think it's it, it's a minefield. It's another <laughs> another topic, perfect for your your podcast. Uh, but that's not to say that I don't think change and and possibly regulation is is needed. Uh, and if you look at what regulations for, I mean some of it's for protecting individuals and their their rights or their privacy or you know but there's also regulation that protects the environment that protects you know social values that so you can look at it on 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 different levels and I think we should I think just thinking about the the interface with the user is um, probably too narrow a focus when we have these other bigger impacts that we've been talking about also occurring
2: hmm. I'm really glad that's where you went, Yolanda, because, um, I mean, one of the things we haven't discussed fully yet, and this is where I think some form of regulation or something like the kind of shared determination that comes out of a process of open deliberation is really necessary here. There's a line in your piece, uh, Alexis, why do you want us to like you? We'll include a link on the Mindfield website that I'll, I'll confess stopped me in my tracks, um, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't think of it, that I didn't think of this as a possible form of abuse. I mean, one of the reasons that Microsoft, for instance, abandoned the development, uh, the further development of kind of mimicry software uh, was because of the way that that opened up the possibility of uh, of uh, mimicking people beyond their consent, so mimicking voices uh, that might be used then to deceive. But there's another the issue of consent here becomes really, really complicated. So you give a number of examples where this kind of software could be used to exacerbate, say, intimate partner violence or settings of domestic violence. And one of the examples that you give that really shook me, and we began with sort of moral intuitions, visceral reactions, this one got a big one for me. Um, Someone using... Someone who has been, say, uh, intimidating or even stalking, uh, maybe a former partner, using the voice of someone with whom they were in an unhealthy or abusive relationship, using that person's voice and programming that into Alexa. A kind of theft of someone else's voice beyond their consent in order to nurture an emotional connection that is profoundly unhealthy and possibly even dangerous, those forms of, of, of abuse, um, I mean, we should be taking that much more seriously than we are, shouldn't we?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, and this isn't new. I mean, we've had this happening with visual, you know, uh, representations mm, right. for some time, you know, with deep fakes and with cyber stalking and, you know, so this is, the, the I guess, the observation there was really just an extension of what we're already seeing with technology playing out now in society where when you have information that somebody can freely take, manipulate and use for a purpose that you didn't consent to, then invariably there's a proportion of people that will do that and embed that, as you said, Scott, into potentially coercive or unhealthy or abusive relationships. So it is something that I think we need to be thinking deeply about now, you know, particularly if if this stuff does proceed, as Amazon is saying, then, you know, we need to be thinking about how we can uh, potentially avoid some of those terrible, st- I don't even know how that would be possible, uh, but, you know, intervening in the, the potential eventuality rather than doing what technology companies and society and governments typically do, which is release the technology, wait until the horrible thing happens, and then turn around and go, oh, no, what are we going to do about this? is a
1: technological solution. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. So this this comes down again to, you know, this kind of, you, we spoke about it in the introduction, having this techno-optimistic optimistic view of the world, presenting something as a solution, and really only focusing on, um, in the case of the big tech companies, you know, for them, it's like, what's the market value? What's the um, what's the outcome that this could deliver us? Rather than really fully thinking through all the potential negative consequences and taking a very proactive approach to that from the beginning, which may include not releasing the technology at all.
1: Mm. Hmm. Not much money to be made in that. No. <laughs> So well. Yolanda, so good to have you on the show again. We'll wait for another AI catastrophe and then I'm sure we'll see you again. Oh, wonderful. That's the way it works, it <laughs> seems to be. Sorry, we should really get you to talk about something a little different, but, you know, you're very good at it. Uh, Yolanda Stringer is Associate Professor of Digital Technology and Society at Monash University, our guest for this edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next time.